a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey everybody, welcome back. Nathan Romas with you. Today, we're going to be talking about the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, It's going to be a very focused discussion on this, but we're going to be kind of going through their ideologies, arms of influence, and some of their efforts to spread their message, uh, maybe change some ideas themselves. For that, I have two people on the show today. First one is Ivy Lee. Ivy is a college professor turned democracy and human rights activist in which she focuses on exposing the CCP's aggression. Ivy was born and raised in Hong Kong and has working experience there and in both the U.S. and Canada. In her efforts to fight back against the CCP infiltration in Canada, she is a contributor to the new book, which Scott is holding up (laughs) there briefly, uh, The Mosaic Effect, How the Chinese Communist Party Started a Hybrid War in America's Backyard. And uh, I have one of the authors from that book, Scott McGregor, which people might remember him from season two, episode 36 on this show. Scott is former Canadian military intelligence. He was an advisor to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police on transnational organized crime and hybrid warfare threats and has worked with Five Eyes intelligence agencies on matters of national security. He is the principal of Close Hold Intelligence Incorporated I'm glad to have you both here. I think it's going to be a very interesting discussion, especially with all the stuff going on right now with our federal government. So welcome to you, Ivy and Scott. Thank you for having me, Nathan. And hello, Scott. Hi, Ivy. Good to hear your voice. And uh, thanks for having me again. Yeah, I'm glad to get you back on here. And Ivy, your first time on here. We actually have been trying to get this booked for a little while, but I think I was sick first and you were sick a couple months later when we tried to book it and now we're back. Uh, So third time's a charm on this. Um, You both were recently in Ottawa, correct? For the release of the book? Yeah. Yes. And how did that go? Was there uh, anybody trying to shut it down? Anybody make any wild claims about it yet? I will let Scott answer that. (laughs) Uh, Well, I think the book launch um, was well received. I think that um, with everything going on with Gaza, that there was definitely not the same support that we, I think, anticipated. Uh, but there's definitely an interest in what was happening. Um, and yeah, so it, it was it was great to see some people and uh, get together and, and meet, have some meetings and some discussions, uh, both with media um, and with colleagues. So it was good. Great. Well, I know, uh, so I picked up the online copy, but uh, I have a few of the hard copies and I'm going to gift them to a few people because... People really need to read this. I've read a couple sections of the book. I haven't made it through the whole thing yet because it just came out. But um, it's it, there's quite the evidence and some of the, the damning stuff in there. So yeah, I recommend people get it. And we'll throw up some links at the end when I when I get this up. So um, maybe we'll start with you, Ivy. We'll talk a bit about you. Um, Scott's already had his turn on this show. So we'll... <laughs> We'll get to you uh, a little bit later, Scott. But um, Ivy, uh, maybe just kind of tell us about yourself, 
growing up, how you got into this uh, crazy world of things, um, and just tell people why they should listen to you. <laughs> well, I was born in Hong Kong in the 1950s, and I left Hong Kong in early 1980s. So my grow-up is not highly under the um, uh, British colonial rules, which is quite different than now Hong Kong is. Um, so we were very apolitical the way I'm growing up because the um, education system at that time doesn't encourage us to talk about politics and just to learn about all the useful stuff, stuff that when you, when you grow up, you can find a job and be very efficient. Um, so schools and the workplaces are conducted in a very Western style mainly in the British style and domestically, um, but domestically the traditional Chinese, not Chinese culture dominated, mm. still very traditional. So politics was considered a useless subject by Chinese parents. Uh, you, you cannot find a job and was discouraged by the colonial education system, uh, which is don't think about politics, just be a good, um, useful money-making unit in Hong Kong. So there was actually a kind of unspoken social contract between the, the British government and the Hong Kong citizens at that time is that you go make money and you enjoy life uh, as much as you could. We will do the housekeeping. We will keep things in order. So we both will be happy. So that is the atmosphere that I was growing up in um and then but because it is a um british colony so it means that um even though both chinese and english are listed as the official language um but english has uh, enjoyed a much higher status so growing up under that environment uh basically chinese being kind of like looked down on the language itself uh, the traditional culture itself and the Western culture and the English language is being up, mm -hmm. up there. And then, so we got the chance and we, everyone learned English. And later on, this ability actually gave me the opportunities to, went to, the, to go to the States to do my graduate studies. One thing I was going to, uh, maybe I'll jump in just real quick, is... I'm wondering, like, when you did um, history class or social studies or whatever it might be called over there, did they ever talk about mainland China? Did they ever talk about what had happened in China? Or is it just more focused on Western uh, culture? No, they actually talk a lot about uh, China. We have an entire course throughout the years in high school, at least for the first three years, is mandatory, is Chinese history. So we have Western history and we have Chinese history. The only thing is, though, because the, the general atmosphere there was we don't talk about politics. So you study Chinese history, and Chinese history have 5,000 years of yeah. histories. You, you, you spend most of the time learning about the ancient history and you're reciting all the emperors' names and dynasties, years and all this. So we all find it very boring. And... <laughs> Require hard memory, so you do it. 
you did it because you have to take exams. Yeah. And then you have the choice of then you want the modern history or you want the history that only up to a certain dynasty. So we, we had a choice to do that. I took the modern history. So the modern history brought up to the uh, communist took over of China. But then in terms of the analysis of it, the way they teach history is quite, you know, boring. It's, you may memorize incidents, dates, and times. Okay. And, and outside that, but Western history, we learn about a bit more history and all this. Um, so history-wise, unless you're really interested in it. But then I, when I was growing up, though, it means that I, I basically have no interest and in, in knew very little about China. But what I remember, uh, the thing that I know is that my parents talking about the adults talk about how people in mainland China behind the bamboo curtain were trying to escape to Hong Kong. And then when they got caught and they would get killed. Mm. And, and then they also talk about how there were bodies uh, flowing down on the rivers from mainland to the Hong Kong water. And the people's feet and hands were bound. Yeah. So obviously they were killed and drowned. So that's one thing that um, even in discussions we've had prior to talking today, uh, I was reading about some of that information. I mean, that's not in the news. It's not like you hear with North Korea. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes those make the news where someone goes running across the border. But I've never heard of that in China. But I found that very interesting. Do you know, is, is that anywhere that you can actually find information on that? Or is that completely um, kind of scrubbed from the history books? No, I mean, the history book won't mention about it because it was two reasons, right? Because it's my, my childhood. The history book will only talk about, I think, up to the communists to go about China. Okay. I don't know about current now, but that was when I was in high school, I mean, in primary school and high school. But what I, you can go Google. I'm pretty sure that you will be able to find the information about uh, the escape, um, especially if you look into the 1970s and 50s, when China had the great leap forward and then followed by the Cultural Revolution. Mm -hmm. uh, millions of people died in the great leap forward from starvation. Yeah. And also lots of people died from the Cultural Revolution. And one thing now I remember, um, even though um, at that time, when I was growing up, I, the only thing I know about, I knew about China was mainland China is behind the bamboo curtain, is very poor and very backward, ruled by the communists. Uh, uh, and, and then, but one thing I remember quite vividly as a child was the 1967 riot, which I think I was about 11 or 10 at that time. And, because remember it because there's real and fake bomb scares every day. Oh, really? And a very well known and popular, yeah, and a very well known and popular radio broadcaster who was very critical about the CCP. Uh, one day on his way to work, and he was with his relative, and they were burned to death in the car. Oh, from a bomb? By the rioters. Oh, right. Okay. By the rioters. The poor, gasoline on the car and on them mm -hmm. and then burn them to death Please. in broad daylight. Yeah. 
And and then there were at least two children, not at least I remember two children died from staying outside and pick up something. It's actually a bomb. They it, they disguise it as like a little package, gift package, and then the kids pick it up and then the bomb exploded down. Um, we couldn't go to school and the public transits were often stopped running because of bomb scares. So that's why I remember. But um the, the, and later I learned more about the riot is that it was started as a labor dispute between the workers of an like artificial flower factory and the owners of the factory, which is Lee Kassing, a Hong Kong tycoon, he's the real Esther, the real estate tycoon. Yeah. Even today, right? Um, and then it evolved to anti-colonial protest. But then the anti-Hong Kong government protest was actually mobilized and supported by the CCP in the back. Um, so, and then we also later the research, people found out that weapons were actually shipped to the rioters from mainland China. And Zhao Anlai uh, was directly involved. Mm-hmm. And there was even a, um, a documentary made in recent years uh, called The Vanished Archive and talk about the entire uh, episode about that riot. Um, but also, but this particular riot is also causing, causing the British colonial government to change because there, there are real uh, legitimate uh, grievance from the workers. And then, so they know that they, um, once they, because the two children uh, died from the bomb, then the broadcaster died a murder and Hong Kong people finally had enough and they told the government that's it just cut it out yeah so the government used a much more um, forces to to cut out the whole thing but after that the entire government's approach changed they they introduced a lot more I think that things that would make Hong Kong Hong Kong's us happier uh, a lot more consideration about the um, the relationship between the people in Hong Kong and the government, uh, and introduce more activities for high school uh, and students. Because the riot mainly is that, like in mainland China, is actually an extension of the cultural revolution in mainland China. The cultural revolution was uh, happening at that time. Yeah. So they're exporting the Cultural Revolution to Hong Kong and they utilize, um, mobilize the high school students in those CCP schools to do the riots and to do the protests in Hong Kong and, and of course the unions and the students so, uh, and the workers. So that it has a very huge impact on how Hong Kong society changed government actually uh, knowing that they cannot they have to be much more less um, colonial style let's put it this way okay so that w- that riot was my first um, I would say my first direct experience of CCP in action do your parents like as you're growing up do your parents do they not talk about 
mainland? Do they not talk about CCP? Is there like fear that they're kind of spies everywhere or, or if, you know, a family member might tell on you? Kind of like you saw in, you know, World War II, you had family members ratting out other family members, telling on them. Um, so is that kind of a concern at that time? Or is that, you know, because you're under, under the Brits, uh, is that not such a, a worry? Uh, not at all. Mm. Uh, Hong Kong, we were under the British system. So um, we have uh, lots of freedom. We can say whatever we like. Um, and then um, we are under the uh, common laws. Our legal system is a British legal system. Uh, we have the basic civil rights. Um, and But in mainland China, it's a totally different uh, it's a, a totally different system and dictatorial. So, but our parents, we, they thought that my mom hated the uh, Chinese communists. She always saying that, oh, they're the worst. But my dad is actually um, a, a union leader in his own workplace. So my dad is much more sympathetic to the CCP, like all the other workers. They all know that CCP is not good, but I think that uh, because my dad's in the union, uh, therefore he's sympathetic with the workers, mm. and therefore they they identify with CCPs who are working for the workers. So just like the, all the propaganda that CCP have, um, China too, they are for the workers, for the poor, but in fact they are not. They are only for their own survival and their own power. Um, then. But, we, but because we are apolitical, most people in Hong Kong are apolitical. So CCP and what happened in China is not really our dinner table topics. Okay. Um, yes. But we do know that uh, they mentioned about relatives in China, very poor people in Hong Kong. When they visit China, if they visit China, they will try to um, mail or uh, bring back some uh, clothing, food, and all this. And I do remember when the people who succeeded and escaped to Hong Kong, as, as soon as they crossed the border, then they know they are free. But when they picked up by the um, Hong Kong police, um, but I was so young I cannot remember quite clearly that uh, often they will be sent back, uh, sent to somewhere, and then the the people will actually be the Hong Kong people will will throw some food onto the truck. I saw some some photos about that. It means that they are being um, trucked away by the police. Yeah. And but the Hong Kong people will run after it and then throw some food onto the the truck for those people. And Scott, you just put up a thing here, just kind of in the chat. Uh, I thought it was kind of an interesting point, just about broadcasting some pro-CCP rhetoric. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Well, I just found it interesting that um, the way the CCP came into Hong Kong and were trying to divide the population, um, but also some of the, I mean, I would call it racist comments that were were uh, being broadcast like stew the white skinned pig mm. fry the yellow running dogs you know? um so those things are are something i want to ask 
Ivy about was, was there a racist sentiment um, about whether that would be uh, the Han thinking that they're better than everyone else or um, superior to, to other races? Uh, I was wondering if that you know, goes back that far or if that's something that's relatively new. So like, it, is that along ethnic lines, but also is it along yeah. races? Right, right. You mean the Han supremacy uh, feeling? Yes. Right? How far back it is. Hmm. Actually, the Han supremacy uh, feeling is way back. And I in here exactly why I think, I think it's very interesting because a lot of the people in the West, Caucasians, got this idea that um, the Chinese are not as racist, especially when they use the, the CCP used the Chinese racist, the racism card, the written book card a lot. In fact, think about the Chinese, uh, the, the China's Chinese name. It's called the Middle Kingdom. Why we call ourselves the Middle Kingdom? We are the center of the universe. We are the descendants of the dragon. We are the descendants of the saintly yellow emperor. And all the people around us, they're barbarians. They're uncultured. And they have to come in and pay uh, money, pay gift to the emperor in the Middle Kingdom and to nail down to the Middle Kingdom. And because the Middle Kingdom is supreme, that idea has been for thousands of years, for, for a long, long time, uh, all those big dynasties. So you're talking about white supremacy. Han supremacy existed before white supremacy. It's an interesting point you bring up and kind of the viewpoint where it's the middle kingdom, where I would think if they were going to name it something, be like the high kingdom, right? Like everyone's supposed to look up to them. But uh it's, I think it's hard for Westerners to grasp the idea of these things going back thousands of years. And I guess for most uh, Western cultures, they kind of come from a place where they're almost always leaving one behind and, you know, rebelling or going off and creating something different. Whereas a lot of the other, uh, say, cultures around the planet tend to kind of centralize on their history and kind of bring those things along with them or necessarily break off and, you know, go create the U S or Canada or whatever it might be. It's, it's, um, I think it's just hard for them to kind of grasp that because you've never grown up with that mentality and the history is, I say very different in that respect. Yeah. Because I think that China landmines was big. Uh, of course, China doesn't become one big country from the get go is, by everywhere else. We got the warrior state, which had many different uh, small countries. And then that was long ago. And then when the Qin Emperor, the first emperor came in and then he beat everyone uh, and formed the big Qin. And then less than a hundred years, I think that then his emperor fell and then, and then picked into different states. And then mm -hmm. on the the Han dynasty came in and then consolidated everything again. So this is a cycle of big dynasty, uh, then breaks up, 
and then you get another dynasty and dynasty. But since the first emperor consolidated the land and everything, and also unified the written, I mean the written language. So once the written, because there's so many different dialects, different languages, but once you unify the um, uh, the uh, written language, now then you created a vehicle, a communication vehicle to rule everyone, and you and then. All the pieces, all the books, and all the uh, written informations now can actually be shared by people who could read that language, mm -hmm. right? So that is that is one of the key factor that you can continue in keeping this big country together as one. Yeah, and even after the Britain dynasty. So, um, but then it's also because of that. The reason we call it Middle Kingdom is that we are in the middle. Every barbarian tribe around us come to us, bring your gift, your tributes, mm -hmm. and uh, and then we then will raise you with your culture, your protection. We don't attack you. Mm -hmm. you we are actually it's totally imperialistic. We we will if you don't we don't. We are bigger than you. You don't come to us. You don't pay us money, and you don't. You don't be uh, obedient. We 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 go and beat you up. Well, I think that'll come into play a bit later when we talk about some of the strategies uh, strategies of the CCP, uh, especially when it comes to the influence and uh, maybe an even infiltration mm -hmm. of Canada now. Uh, and Scott, you just put up a date what? there. Uh, yeah, I was just um, when when I was putting things in perspective about the consolidation of um, the kingdoms or the dynasties um, within China. I don't think a lot of people realize that the People's Republic of China wasn't even created until 1949, so after the Second World War. Mm -hmm. um, I think that escapes some people. I think they think, you know, um, looking back at people from that region that came to Canada uh, or the United States to work in the railway, etc., um, they think that they are Chinese, and they're. It wasn't. It wasn't China at the time. It was the Qing Dynasty. Um, so there's some confusion around who came, and, and you know <clears throat> what they encountered, uh, etc. And I just wanted to give a little bit more perspective that yeah, China's a relatively new country, um, and you know the Cultural Revolution was was a big deal. Um, a lot of people lost their lives, and I know Ivy has um, experiences that relate back to that. And, and I'm sure that she has tons of family that also uh, remember what happened there. Um, and I've met, you know, some other people um, that have had family that was executed um, because they were landowners. They had all their land taken away, um, etc. So they were, you know, had to leave the country and managed to escape with their lives. So, you know, these stories are really compelling, but I think it really builds the, the groundwork to understand some of the complexities. And I think Ivy can explain the complexities when it comes to um, tactic techniques and procedures, as we would like to call it in the intelligence mm -hmm. world, um, on specifically how they identify an issue and then they how they resolve it. Um, you know, the go-to isn't just 
to go in and kill everyone. Um, the leveraging uh, happens at multiple levels uh, and in different ways. And Ivy's experienced that herself. So um, yeah, let her continue. I just wanted to make the point of uh, the uh, People's Republic of China being created in October of 1949. Yeah. If you want to continue there, I go ahead. I do want to kind of move to uh, you getting involved in uh, politics, but a bit on your education as well, because I think it also helps explain how you analyze some of these these issues. Right. Um, the 1997 riot was my first direct experience of CCP in action. And there's another very important incident so the seed for me later becomes so determined to actually push back CCP's expansion, especially in democracies, is that um, in 1980, I actually uh, took a one-month trip. I arranged it for myself, uh, and I brought three other girlfriends into um, mainland China to actually travel along the Silk Road and which we came up from Hong Kong to Xi'an, the ancient capital, and then we start traveling west towards East, um, East Pakistan, that is the, in China they call it Xinjiang. And I went to the capital, Yuvamchi. And, uh, and then along the way, we, take a, we took a detour to the Qinghai Plateau, which is a, uh, a Tibetan, I think that, um, not, we didn't get to Tibet, we didn't get, we was not able to get the permit. Travel was very restricted okay. at that time in China. Yeah. And then, and then we came back to, uh, to Beijing and went up to Inner Mongolia. So that, so you can see the span of the route that we were traveling. But I asked one the same questions to everyone that I got a chance to talk to over this large span of areas but unfortunately i forgot what question i was asking but i got the same answer mm. the same answer was good enough so at that time i came from hong kong which i i could talk about anything i like if i asked this, the same question to two people i probably would got a very different answers so i was in my mid-20s from the early 20 mid-20s and I'm thinking, how could, how come I got the same answer from these people from such a different uh, province and, and place? So I thought either they dare not to say anything, yeah, or they cannot come up with any ideas because they cannot think. They have no ideas. So I said, either way, that's terrifying for me, who came from a very free place. Um, and I said, Never, I would never. I can never able to live under dictatorship like them. Mm -hmm. So, but I know that mainland China will come to Hong Kong sooner or later, right? Uh, so then, so the um, that make me determine that I wanted to find a way to leave Hong Kong. So that that's the beginning. Um, then, and also. What happened is that even though I was a political, but I had my values, and I also I knew what I I'm able to tolerate what I couldn't. So I looked for a chance 
Um, so I, I decided I'm going to see if I can study in the U.S. because I thought U.S. would be more free. And also another thing that pushed me out of Hong Kong was that I really didn't like the very materialistic, money-oriented values. Um, your success, your being a, a, a successful person were totally evaluated upon what job you have, how much money you make, and all this. And I hated that. So I always call myself a cultural refugee. <laughs> I left Hong Kong because I didn't like that the, the major values there. And at the back is I knew that I I can no longer I can never live under dictatorship. So lucky enough, I went to the States. Um but in Hong Kong after uh I graduated from high school, uh I went to Polytechnic to do my um design study. And design methodology itself is a pop is a problem solving methodologies. And so it tells you, it, te it teaches you how, how to uh, ask questions and how to research and how to uh, come up with solutions, possible ideas. And then you've got to evaluate and analyze the um, outcome of those ideas and then to make your choice. And then you have to validate it by actually um, testing it with your um, your target audience. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, then you come back and say, how can I improve it? So it's a very uh, research and uh, logic and uh, analysis and evaluation intense process. And at that time, I didn't realize that that will help me. Later on, when I fight back the CCP in here, those particular skills are extremely, and thinking abilities extremely important. Then, um, so maybe that is also the reason. That was the reason that I could ask myself, how could, how, how, how did these people give me the same answer on the same questions? Then, when I went to the states, um, I took, uh, I did my graduate studies, and I took uh, visual communications. And, we, and then later when I taught, I focused my teaching on information design. So both visual communications and information design, again, is about looking at how uh, people manipulate informations, how you communicate them, how you, how you can actually change the perception of something by the way you present the information, not just visually, Content-wise, how you how you sequencing it, how you uh, place the emphasis, what the headlines would be, and then how you uh, how you guide people through the orientation of they take in the information. Yeah, that will actually manipulate the way how they perceive it. It sounds like something out of an Orwellian book, right? Like it's. Yes. This is what you're kind of battling now. <laughs> yeah, so that, that ability in graduate school uh, that I learned, of course, is exactly what CCP is doing here in the psychological warfare. All, all the information are being manipulated, distorted, twisted, and that's exactly what I was 
I, I was teaching is how to see through it and how to identify is the integrity of the information being manipulated. Uh, is, is the information integrity has been uh, damaged? And where is it lacking? Where is it missing? So with that kind of background and with my design process, problem-solving background, this combined allowed me to, when I started to think, I need to research more about CCP. I need to understand what CCP is doing, what this animal is, and then what are they doing, and then how to fight back. So all this comes together, become essential skills. Um, so, the, so when I started, what drew me back um, to the CCP, because I, I was a political in Hong Kong, I left Hong Kong to study, and because Hong Kong's um, educational system is to just point you to nothing about things like philosophy, politics, that kind of so-called useless abstract stuff, and they wanted to learn all the practical stuff like the, the math skill, the language skill, science, and all these things. So when I went to graduate school, I feel like I'm discovered, I have discovered an intellectual treasure box. I totally forgotten about Hong Kong. I totally forgotten about Asia, basically. I was roaming around in uh, the US and play with my intellectual toys, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, and what drew, drew me back to Hong Kong and to China, to that part of the world, was when I came up to Canada in 1989. I was there in May. And then one night, I turned on the TV, I couldn't sleep, I turned on the TV. I saw this guy in a white shirt carry some kind of thing in, in, in his plastic bag with two hands, stood in front of a row of tanks. And the tank drive moved, and he's, he's running in front of me, just stepped over in front of him again. I, I, I watched it with my mouth dropped because it was right. It was, it, it was on TV. Mm -hmm. and, and then next day, sure indeed, the image of the guy in front of the tank was plastered over the uh, Western media. And of course, that's the tank man, the famous tank, tank man. So I went to downtown Toronto and joined the protest, the rally. And then that's the first time uh, it, the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre drew me my attention back to CCP and also uh, made me join the Toronto Association for Democracy in China. And when I went to the downtown rally that was organized by, uh, by them, I think by the precursor, the TADC was formed because of the, the, the massacre. And, um, and, then, and then a couple of years later, I was invited to join their board. So I was on their board until about 10 years, until I left Toronto. Uh, at the same time, I was also coming together with a group of um, artists and designers. We formed a very small group called Design for Democracy. So we helped TADC to do uh, any kind of visual pops that they need uh, in the um, events. Um, 
so that so that was my 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 attention being drawn back to CCP. But I was too busy. I have nothing, no time for anything else except helping out in the to any annual uh, commemorative event that uh, organized by TDC. Then I then I was burned out, um, and I left, and I decided to 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 go to Vancouver uh, to join my husband there, and. So I and once I went to Vancouver, I quit the TADC and um, I put because I was so burned out from work, uh, I I put Hong Kong, China all behind my back. They were out of my life. I wanted to do something something different. I quit design teaching. I quit design profession. I want to learn how to grow my own food. Okay. So I had to learn. <laughs> so, but anyway, so then until, and I was told uh, by a friend that um, Martin Lee, who is a very well-known pro-democracy leader in Hong Kong, and Aysen Chan, she was the the, the first, um, uh, the highest civil servants in Hong Kong after the the handover in 1997. So in, they both came over to Vancouver, sending out an SOS on Hong Kong's behalf and telling the Vancouver Chinese community that uh, Hong Kong people now were fighting for universal suffrage, which was promised to them by the CCP when they signed the Sino-British Joint Declaration in 1984. Um, but CCP obviously has no intention to honor that. Not only that, they actually wanted to suppress it. So people in Hong Kong were fighting. That was before the umbrella movement. Maybe I'll just jump in there real quick. One thing I did want to point out is, uh, from my own knowledge, anytime people give up their rights, especially back to the government, you're giving up their rights, uh, and you don't get them back. Mm-hmm. Usually, got to be a like a, a fight, like an actual war, to get whatever you want back. So I can see why they're coming out now and saying, "Hey, you know, we're going to start fighting for these things because we're going to try and do it on the front end because we don't want to give these things up." Exactly. Plus, this thing was agreed uh, in the Sino uh, in the Sino British Joint Declaration in nineteen eighty four. Uh, when the British government agreed to hand over Hong Kong to mainland China. And they even have a timeline there that Hong Kong people are supposed to get to a certain stage, uh, progress to a certain stage already for universal suffrage. But the Hong Kong government, which is a CCP puppet, of course, and kept delaying it and pushing it back. So people had enough um, in Hong Kong. By 2014, they started the uh, protest, and then, and then so, uh, and the, the police, when the police actually used rubber bullets and uh, tear gas, which was at that time have not done it on Hong Kong citizens for decades under the British rule, and Hong Kong people were shocked, and so all the parents were worrying about there's another Tiananmen. Square massacre, 
So they came out en masse, blocked the street, and that started the, the, the real umbrella movement, the, the hijack of it, the Occupy Central uh, 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 protest. And so, of course, it was very intense. I followed from someone that basically not pay attention to Hong Kong for years. And suddenly, I was watching the uh, computer, the, all the telegram groups uh, from Hong Kong and all this, every day for hours and hours, and just to find out, to catch up with what happened in Hong Kong. Um, and so it's from that onwards that I started to research on CCP and, and understanding what is happening in Hong Kong. Where are you getting most of your news at that point from? Is it from just CBC? Or are you mostly uh, going to you know, maybe friends that are over there that can send you messages? All, all, all channels. Uh, definitely not TV. I, I, I don't have a TV. I have a TV for decades. Okay. I don't watch TV. So, But like everyone else, when you do research, you Google. Yeah. The first thing you go to, online, Google. Even, and then um, from online, you, I can read all the Chinese uh, uh, information from Hong Kong. And I, I can also read all the English uh, information and reports from Western media. So you have a, the best of the whole world. You can, you, because I'm, I'm fully bilingual, and my first language is English Chinese, I can read and write Chinese. So I can get the first-hand information from Chinese information. So later on, when I did my research about CCP, that is very useful because CCP put out information differently in Chinese yeah. and in English. Scott, you have a point. Maybe I'll just bring this up here. We were talking about psychological operations, so we're just kind of going on what Ivy's saying, what's actually being put out there is a little different than what we might be seeing. Um, do you want to kind of just talk about psychological operations a little bit here? I think uh, Ivy's touched on it a little bit earlier in uh, what she was saying. Mm -hmm. And the, um, the psychological operations aren't just conducted on your adversary. It's, it's also conducted on your own people. And that's what I think she was trying to get at, is that the misinformation when she was traveling or lack of information, lack of creativity, lack of expression. Uh, I think those things are reflected in some of the advancements and some of the need for, for the PRC to um, be stealing intellectual property. That brain drain, that, uh, that lack of innovation, um, those things have been noted you know, by entrepreneurs and, and everyone else um, looking at the uh, commerce piece for China. And then the, the other side of that is pretending that you don't have that problem, uh, portraying to the world that everything's hunky-dory, everything's good, everything's fine, um, nothing to see here. I think those messages are, are more difficult for the West to see because we can't read Mandarin or Cantonese. Yeah. Um, and so, so we're limited in, in the information that does manage to get out of, of uh, the region, um, not unlike uh, North Korea, for instance. You, know, you only know what's going on in North Korea because somebody made a documentary of stealing a video out of there or uh, somebody had a, a story to tell. Yeah. Uh, and yet here we are with 
you know, Hong Kong and, and people like Ivy that that have lived it, that know people that are living it, that are expressing what's going on there. And there just hasn't been the interest because until it impacts um, you personally, uh, the traction just doesn't sort of uh, pick up. Mm. Uh, so these stories that you're you're reading in the news and, and and some of these documentaries that you might see here and there, they are starting to become of interest because now it's been put into uh, correlation with what's happening in Canada uh, or the United States for that matter. And so the psychological piece is you're you're seeing them trying to alter reality, um, and it's difficult for us to understand what's true and what's not true because the understanding of how the the Chinese Communist Party works in general is misunderstood. And then this, the same way as um, they conduct um, their corporations, uh, so their corporate entities, you know, trying to think that that is all on the up and up because our government may have engaged in trade relations with that country. And yet we see corporations that are from mainland China and then they open a subsidiary in Hong Kong, and then they mirror that subsidiary in Canada, and now you're able to move China money out of China. I'm talking about illicit money, yeah, uh, through through those those conduits. Um, so you know the threat finance piece. There's misinformation. Canadians just don't quite understand it. We have that hierarchical thinking, um, and we see tend to see things kind of in black and white. Where uh, I, I would dare say the Chinese operating a bit more of a gray area mm-hmm. yeah anyway that's just a little spiel on that i i actually uh, want to echo what scott's saying in here i think one thing canadians need to understand is that um china well one thing we wanted to, we need we want to understand uh, ccp well is that we need to look at what they have succeeded so far and why they can why they can be so successful, especially back home, because they're exporting their strategy, using the same strategy with a variation on, on us right now. And I can see several strategies, but one thing Scott was talking about, uh, that how they uh, use their business corporation and citizen do something that in the West we never would thought about that we can be using that we won't be allowed in here so i think that the, the most successful thing they have done is that they they impose a foreign ideology which is marxism uh, socialism and communism on to 1 billion plus chinese citizens and kill tens of millions of chinese people mostly the majority han chinese with impunity how could they actually done that mm-hmm. and get away with that? So one thing we must bear in mind, even though CCP is very racist, very racist, right? We know how they treat the Uyghurs. But its bottom line is the party survival, longevity, and absolute domestic power. So regardless of ethnicity, CCP will have no hesitation to kill, including its own Han race. So Bear that in mind, then, you, then they started with eradicating the backwards of the traditional hand culture um, in order to replace it with a foreign ideology. So 
They do it by identifying key cultural elements, including Confucianism. That's why it makes Confucius Institute such a joke. Mm-hmm. Uh, they identify those key cultural elements as toxins that must be eliminated. Now, they are using the same strategy to destroy the bedrock of democracy right now. And I, I will come back to this. Um, and then they tortured and murdered whole numbers of scholars and intellectuals to, to destroy the thinking ability of the, of the people in the culture. And they destroyed temples, so to destroy the spiritual foundation of people. Then they sent young people away from schools to work in the rural areas to destroy education, right? And, and they forced everyone to study Mao's Little Red Book, so replaced the education with Mao's Little Red Book, mm-hmm. right? They forced everyone to spy on and betray each other, even on your own parents or siblings. So they destroy trust between everyone. But these are the tactics that they're using in here, all of those. And then they censored information, twisted, distorted, and rewrote history. And now CCP is using this strategy right now in Canada by targeting our museum. Now, all this actually, as many of them been mentioned in Mosaic Effect in their case studies. So after living through seven decades, CCP through China, only less than 80 years, it's, it's only 70 years or so. So Scott was ex- exactly right. CCP is not China. Yeah. He only started controlling China in 1949, right? And has nothing to do with the traditional Han culture, the Chinese culture. So after living through seven decades of lies, deceptions, propaganda, merciless purges, and human rights abuses, the values, mindset, and the behavior of the Han people in mainland China had been drastically altered. The tenets of traditional Chinese virtues and culture that many Westerners were so admired and romanticized about are basically gone. Uh-huh. It's nothing there. So in, in other words, the CCP has remodeled the psyche and conditioned the reflects of the Han majority to its liking those who dare to refuse and rebel, rebel about it would be silenced, imprisoned, or disappeared. So what is the grand result? Is that CCP has created an enormous troop of civilian helpers, or you can call them civilian soldiers, at CCP's disposal to conquer the world. And all Chinese citizens now, and private or state business, are now legally required to do whatever they are told by the security agencies. They have no choice. It's legally required in the law, Article 7. Uh, And this is CCP's civilian military fusion on the entire country. Um, And I know the Mosaic effect, the book, talk about that uh, a lot. so there's no, we, we must bear in mind there's no true private business and no citizen is able to be independent. CCP owns them. 
and controls them. So now then, right now, CCP is already exporting a prime debt strategy of remodeling psyche and reconditioning reflex to Hong Kongers. They impose the NSL, eliminating all pro-democracy media, imprisoning all pro-democracy politicians, leaders, and protesters, and changing school curriculums, uh, introducing mandatory patriotic classes in schools at all levels, including universities, including primary school, yeah. and then setting up reporting hotlines, which is like the Cultural Revolution. And then after this, I guarantee you, they will manipulate and coerce Hong Kongers to be CCP's tools for suppression and propaganda, just like those in mainland. There's no more one country, two systems. Then, if you look at what they're doing now, I'm coming back to my point about applying the, the strategy to Canada and the West. The one that they apply is eradicating the bad loss of democracy by appropriation and redefining. This is how they do it. They establish democracy think tanks within the, the, within the PRC in recent decades to twist and con uh, the context and the meanings of democratic values and ideas such as rule of laws, universal suffrage, citizen-centered, justice, inclusion, harmony, human rights, etc. Yeah. And redefine them to suit its dictatorial agenda. So it's just like these are toxins. So they have to get rid neutralize them, right? And so it adds, CCP argues there's no universality to the definition of human rights. Instead, they must be tied to the unique situation of each country. So-called the, uh, the the condition of that country, the right to development is a responsibility of the states to its citizens, and so it is about civil and political rights. That is one of his distorted logic. Then, and he did a whole bunch with others. Then, armed with this, their own definition of democracy and human rights, and CCP said. The, the PRC has is a democratic country with human rights fully protected. And then with the support of many authoritarian governments in the third world, the CCP is the goal is to change the definition of human rights in the United Nations. And they have succeeded already to some degree. They did put in certain things that they want. Um, and now, if you think about what happened to the Han culture and to to our to the Han traditional values and virtues, if CCP succeeded to redefine and make UN redefine the de definition or modify the definition to their liking, the fundamental tenets of Western democracy would disappear. Democracy and human rights with Chinese characteristics will become the CCP's tool for suppression worldwide. And that is what they do. Another thing that they, they, they apply to us is censoring information, twisting, distorting, and rewriting history in Canada by targeting our museums. 
so uh and also unesco yeah um i i won't go into the detail here but i would i would recommend everyone to take a look at the case study in chapter two of the mosaic effect of a private chinese history museum in Lytton, a small town in bc and it's on page 28. even more ambitious look at please take a look at the case study of chapter 15 and about the new federally and provincially funded chinese canadian museum mm -hmm. in vancouver chinatown so I, I can vouch for this because uh, these are the parts that I was reading when we last talked. And like, wow, people's minds are going to be blown. Um, but I don't want people to think that, okay, this is just conspiracy theory. Like, what do you, you know, everyone's just saying crazy stuff or believing whatever is out there. You guys present very good cases with very good sources of information. A lot of pictures of people hanging out uh, together as well. So I, I want people to that are listening to really understand that um, this stuff is right in front of you. A lot of it's actually being reported on. It's in uh, CBC mm -hmm. now. Uh, Sam Cooper's been putting out a ton of stuff. Uh, like this isn't. Uh, you don't have to dig very far to find these things now. You know, so it, it, it's. Very important. It's critical that people get the, you know, an understanding of this. I mean, we only have an election coming up uh, two years away now. Mm -hmm. I think it's yeah, October of 2025. So people should start kind of getting in the know and get educated on a lot of these issues because something like this, national security, um, needs to be a big issue in there. Policing, national security, all of it. It needs to be one of the main topics. But if the citizens don't push that, the politicians aren't going to talk about it. So, I also want to add to your point in here while talking about it is that many people see uh, the um, foreign policy is only about diplomatic efforts with other countries. It doesn't affect our daily life. Mm -hmm. But CCP's infiltration in Canada tells us exactly the opposite. Foreign policy is domestic policy. Yes. And look at what happened in Vancouver. I lived in Vancouver for uh, almost 20 years. And look at housing. Why we have unaffordable housing. What, what are the impacts of unaffordable housing on our daily life? Um, I personally, so victim of it, when my, uh, when my landlord had to sell the house because the landlord has to go into nursing home. We have to find another rental place. We couldn't find anything affordable, even though my husband has a job there. So we were forced out. We had to go to Edmonton, much affordable place. And then when I was in Vancouver, I knew that employers cannot hire people because the staff cannot find a place to, to live there. Nurses, firefighters, policemen, um, uh, teachers. Yeah. And not, not to mention about like other uh, professions that may not have uh, such a stable incomes. 
they couldn't live there locally, then how can you make how can you live there and work there? So and then at the same time, the and all the houses are being taken down and rebuilt into monster homes and there are absentee landlords and then schools now have no no not enough students, they're closing down schools, uh, and all the local little businesses are closing down and props up with business that are only serving the absentee landlords and also the rich from other places that who own the place, the house in here doesn't care about the community because they don't live here. Everything impacted, affected the locals' life. Uh, and also it skewed the policy of the of the local government. They skewed the policy which is away from the beneficial to the local residents. So it's a huge impact. Is there any way to recognize CCP efforts like for the typical Westerner uh, or Canadian in general, anybody that's here from any other country, is there anything that they can do uh, to maybe recognize any kind of patterns? Is there certain type of uh, certain type of messaging that goes out that sh- maybe people should key in on and be like, ah, oh, wait a second, I was told if I hear this, I should ask questions. And I think that's part of the biggest issue is getting people to just ask questions and then choose to get educated. But where can people look to kind of recognize some of these these efforts? Well, um, you mentioned before about um, things that many things that you don't have to think very deep. You already see those things, right? When you talk about the chapter 15, what you read about, there's, there's a patterns and we have to connect the dots. So if we want to spot CCP's operation in here, um, don't look for a smoking gun. There's no, there's no smoking gun. It doesn't exist mm-hmm. because it's not death by bullets fired from a single device. It is death by a thousand small cuts with different instruments on different parts of the body. So, not one single cut is very obvious and lethal, so you won't notice it. But combined, the victim leads to death from all these wounds without knowing until it's too late. That is the strategy they are using on us. Mm-hmm. Nothing illegal if you look at them independently, separately, because Canada has no law to deal with this type of situation. They are looking for someone holding a smoking gun, and you got caught, then you got punished. But when, when no one sees you holding a smoking gun, there's no smoking gun, nothing to be punished, right? No law will be broken. So now, one of my other teammates had to put it in a different way. They're saying, as she's saying that it is death by slow poisoning, with the poison being administered to different organs using a variety of means and methods over a, over a long period of time. So instead of looking for a gun, look for signs of poisoning by United Fund Work Department. Yeah. Um, we can talk about what United Fund Work is if we have time. But so look for possible motivation and look for areas or components that are being poisoned 
and by what means. Such studies means looking for patterns and then connect the dots. One thing you must remember, conspiracy is how CCP thinks and operates. They plan for long term, five years, 10 years, 20 years, even 100 years. Mm -hmm. So they work in conspiracy. We must get that in our mind. I just want to get Scott's opinion on kind of what you're saying there, because maybe more for our law enforcement and then intelligence professionals. Would this kind of be where the whole uh, conversation like we had before, evidence versus intelligence, evidence is has to go through a court. We need the, the proper laws in place to kind of even get to uh, an end goal there. But you have intelligence. Do we need to act more on the intelligence then? Because we're not necessarily, we don't have the laws right now to go after some of these people. But if we get a good piece of intel that says, hey, this person's kind of messing around, they're influencing politicians, they're doing these things, get them out of the country or whatever else they think about doing with them. Sure. So the, the interpretation of what Ivy's talking about is, would be the intelligence analysis piece. You have all these cuts, as she's, as she's pointing out, um, which are you know, not necessarily incidents, they're activity. And they can be in a variety of different threat streams. Um, when it comes to uh, the actual legal process, it gets a little bit tricky because it depends on who you're looking at and you have to have the resources and capabilities to actually do something about it. So how many you know, fully fluent Mandarin speakers with an understanding of intelligence or law enforcement do we have in Canada? They say we're very limited. But to try and understand the complexity of it takes a very long time. Uh, there's only a handful of us, I think, that have actually worked on files uh, of that transcend your normal organized crime type activity. So part of hybrid warfare is transnational organized crime. Uh, so what we're talking about here, when we talk about the United Front activity, that's that's more of the sharp power and some of the uh, soft power. So the economic and the political and those things, Ivy's hundred percent exactly correct because um, we're having a public inquiry about it now and they're calling it, you know, uh, interference, foreign interference. Uh, but really that's very limiting and it's not looking at the entire scope of Chinese operations in Canada. Um, when, when uh, we're trying to connect United front to bad guys, that's where it gets more interesting. And right now, I don't see law enforcement having the ability uh, or the political will to start to identify those things. As Ivy said, it is saturated in Canada. Yeah. I can almost show you almost anything that's going on and find a connection back to the Chinese. It's frightening. Um, and mainly that is due to the money laundering aspect. So the threat finance piece. Because China is known with, within the cartels, within terrorist organizations, um, as the best opportunity to launder your money for the least cost. Um, I won't get into specifics on that. It's, a lot of that's kind of sensitive information. But um, from all over the world, these, these organizations are moving their money through China. Um, and that doesn't, it's like Heidi said, it's not just from one country to China and that's it. Um, they will go through multiple countries uh, 
and, and changing currency types to get it to where it needs to go. And that can be done almost instantaneous um, using electronic means. Uh, so, and that's facilitated by state-sponsored activity. Yeah, That's not just a bunch of criminals that have managed to infiltrate uh, an organization and they've got somebody that's the manager of a bank and they can do it. Um, this is state-sponsored activity. People have a hard time looking at that. Law enforcement can't bite off that much uh, in Canada. Um, and I dare say the United States has a difficult time as well because of the scope and depth of it. We're talking trillions of dollars. Um, illicit networks are, are the largest economy in the world. Um, so, you know, when, when we put sanctions on Russia, they don't, they don't bat an eye. We think they do. And some of their oligarchs are, are now limited. They can't sail their boats into, uh, you know, the nice beach areas. But when it comes to being able to move their money and get the things that they need, there's, they're already adept at this. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So going back to what Ivy had mentioned about the thousand cuts and when you mentioned the difference between intelligence and evidence, um, yes, we have, we have tons of information that, that indicates things, but because there's no strategy or um, matrices that tells you what that means, uh, or how to act on it, as simple as money laundering, where we have indications. So $20 bills that are wrapped in elastic bands, that's an indication that there's something wrong when you're you know, delivering that to a casino. Um, is it evidence? Well, if a subject matter expert comes up and tells you, hey, this, this is evidence, then it's evidence. Uh, for us, it's information. And we start to compile all of those little pieces together and that's how we can start to identify it. Um, the United Front is connected to organized crime. Yes. Now, well, I don't know when you've ever read about anybody being arrested for those connections, but you won't because you need a predicate offense and it has to fall within the criminal code, right? So it's not as um, straightforward as we would like it to be uh, as, as Westerners. So yes, when we talk about legal reform, political reform, finding frameworks to address the threats. But first, you have to identify the threats. So somebody's going to have to come and talk to people like me. Uh, and, uh, you know, I dare say Mr. Cal Presti, who's in Ottawa right now, meeting with a bunch of dignitaries, uh, talking about illicit networks. Um, so there is traction. There's, there's definitely starting to become an awareness around it. Hopefully, we're moving in the right direction towards addressing. Well, and this reminds me of one article that I, it's just an article I saw recently. I posted on LinkedIn, and it said that the RCMP, I think, is something like sixteen, maybe eighteen uh, percent of their service spends their time on federal policing. Sixty percent, roughly, was uh, on frontline, like municipal policing. And that just that for me, that was kind of a shocking statistic. Where I go okay, this is why there's such a wide open door for all these people to just essentially do whatever they like. We need way more resources, way more eyes looking at these things. When you look at law enforcement, I think there's a, there, there certainly could be a shift in where it's focused and what it actually does. And you could still make easy cases for, I need more money, I need more people. you know. But I think a lot of the services are scared to give up those components all the way down to the frontline policing and 
handing out hugs and high fives. Like we need a huge shift away from a lot of stuff to be, hey, you enforce the criminal code and you protect us. That's what you do. And then we need other people doing the other things. So I, I just want to uh, echo what Scott said uh, about one issue that he raised is we don't have enough bilingual people involved in, in understanding, analyzing the information. And that is very true because not only that you needed to have that Chinese English capability, you also need to have a certain degree of understanding about, say, the Chinese culture, the CCP culture there, in order for you to accurately understanding the Chinese that they're talking about. Things that, and, and also another thing that you can do uh, is if you can read both, then you can compare what they say in Chinese, what they say in English. From there, you can deduce what they really try to do, how they want to fool the Western and how they want to fool the domestic audience. Now, what they say in Chinese is not necessarily yeah. any more accurate than from about their real motivation, but it's a lot more detail, a lot more information they put in the Chinese info and not in the English. The English is to fool the Caucasians. But when you put these two together, you can deduce and then combine with your understanding about the CCP's operation, more of thinking, and now you put the three, the three things together. But the difficulty for us in Canada and for Western democracies is that even though if you can find a person have that capability, can you trust that person? Mm, okay. Even that if they came from mainland China, they are mandatory, they have relatives in there. They are mandatory to work for the intelligence agencies, even though they don't want to. There's huge punishment. So that you are adding, and now if you think in the past, oh, people from Hong Kong will be safe because they are not like China. They are not subjecting to it. But no, things are changing now. So where are you going to find that? Plus they use United Fund work. Even if you grew up here, born here, and you learn that your family taught you, the, uh, you went to Chinese school when you were young, and then if you were interested in it, you got a certain. But they, they can, you can be United Fronted. Mm-hmm. So even if you're born here, you look at how many of our politicians are born here also being United Fronted. So we face CCP's hybrid war, which is definitely. You can see how wide and how wide and deep is from the mosaic effect. It's so holistic. We are being attacked from all fronts, from outside and from within. And so, but I wanted to talk about different example about how we can see the patterns and connect the dots. Yeah, because that is what because we don't have. Enough law, uh, law enforcement police to do these kind of things. Intelligence lacking resources also. And politicians are not consulting people that they can consult, the experts who understand, right? And therefore, we need to rely on citizens. And like what you said, a lot of these thoughts are actually not that hard to find. 
you just have to connect them, right? So here, I think I wanted to use a Chinese-Canadian museum as an example, as a case study for us. Let's look at the thoughts. In January 2018, the Chinese Benevolent Association of Vancouver, CBA, they chaired a discussion forum on Vancouver Chinatown's application to become a UNESCO's World Heritage Site, which is WHS in short, right? CBS is a well-known pro-Beijing organization. Okay. So once you see CBS promoting something, then the red flag should be up. Now, and, and then the attendance, but it's all in Chinese, of course, the attendance expressed strong support of the idea that Vancouver Chinatown applied to become a World Heritage Site then you know that something's going on. It's, it means it's supported by the Chinese consulate, mm. by CCP. Then, then in September 2018, uh, that was the meeting is in January 2018, the forum, right, to raise this idea from CBA. And in September 2018, Vancouver Mayor Gregor Robinson and BC Premier John Hogan at the time both of very Beijing-friendly politicians signed an MOU, the Memorandum of Understanding, announcing that they are pushing Vancouver Chinatown to be designated as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. But this dot number two, they said the World Heritage Site des designation would preserve Chinatown as a permanent reminder of the discrimination leveled against a community that was instrumental in building this country. So, racist card. Yes. Victim with card issued, used by, our, by Vancouver Mayor and the, the BC Premier. Right? And then, a they also announced a Chinese-Canadian museum is part of that commitment. Then, Chinese-Canadian museum, right? And I, I can almost certain that both Gregor Robertson and John Hogan would have been lobbied heavily by some of the attendants of that forum, of the CBA forum. And I would not be surprised if certain agreements had been reached behind the scene well in advance. There's almost nine months in between, right, the forum and that. And dot number three, in early 2019, BC government ran a formal community consultation process on the Chinese Canadian Museum, led by the Minister of State for Trade, George Chow. George Chow is a well-known Beijing-friendly politician. I actually went to one of these consultations in Vancouver. That was on January 2019, one full year after the CBA forum. They have the consultation. Here's a very revealing part that we must all know. On the side of that room, the consultation room, a draft timeline of Chinese-Canadian history was hung by a clothes pin, a, a clothes line on the hot, uh, and um, on, east, on the end of, I mean, on two poles. Yep. And 
At two end of the poll, there's a message in English and Chinese, and it tells you, please add to the timeline any story or, or historical event that are important to you, to your family or your community. The timeline is very skeletal. There is, of course, much nuance and details regarding the rich history of Chinese-Canadian achievements, resilience, and integration. So it's an invitation for you to look through that. But they put though, that timeline at the corner that I didn't notice in the beginning. I was actually being alerted by another participant in the room. Uh, I almost missed it completely. So I look at the timeline, which is they use pieces of paper, type out the timeline, and then use clothes pin to pin on the, to click on the line. And the timeline started from 1778 and ended at 2006. It mentioned the arrival of the first Chinese in 1778, and it mentioned the Chinese immigration waves in 1967 and 1986. But very strangely, between 1986 and 2006, there was nothing on the timeline uh -huh. completely blank. A long time, right? The timeline left out Canada's two largest ethnic Chinese immigration waves. They are also two of Canada's largest immigration waves and have significant social and economic impacts on this country. The one one was caused by the 1989 Tenement Massacre. The other one was caused by the 1997 handover of Hong Kong to Beijing by the British. People from Hong Kong were fleeing en masse in both cases, and these two wavelengths, I mean, immigration waves were completely missing. Yeah. And not only that, when the timeline mentioned the 1967 immigration wave, he said, it was caused by, quote, more liberal immigration policy introduced. Many Chinese professionals entered Canada, unquote. But it was not true. It was caused by the 1967 riots in Hong Kong and the 1966 to 1976 Cultural Revolution in mainland China. Hong Kong, Hong Kong people were scared shit and fear. Yeah. Excuse my language. <laughs> Um, so it means that they actually distort history. Now, then, when the timeline mentioned the 1986 immigration wave, it said it was caused by, quote, Investment Canada had brought many Hong Kong and Taiwan entrepreneurs to Canada, unquote. Again, it's not true. It was triggered by the signing of the Sino-British Joint Declaration in 1984, confirming that Hong Kong would be handed over to Beijing in 1997. Once again, Hong Kong is freeing. So, I, because they ask people to add anything that they think is missing, right? So I, I picked a piece of card that they put in there, the empty card. I corrected the real reason for both of the immigration wave in 1967 and 1986, and added in the and added in the 1990 to 1992 Tenement Massacre immigration wave, and also the 1996 to 1998 Hong Kong handover wave. I added these two onto the timeline. And 
um, to prove the existence of the draft timeline, I actually took photos of the entire timeline after I added my handwritten notes. Mm-hmm. If you you can see one of those photos in the mosaic effect, which is on page two hundred and fifty one on the paperback. Okay. So they cannot deny it. <laughs> I th- I like how it shows though, like there's a lot of control of the narrative, right, and manipulation of history, and uh, you know, oh well, a wave of immigrants it came from you know for this reason. But really, there's a whole other reason that it happened. So I, I, I think that's a really good explanation of it. Um, one of the things I want to make sure uh, if we can get to is just you talk about the twin card strategy and you kind of brought it up already. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the racism and the victimhood sides. And for me, this stuff uh, speaks a lot to, I think, a lot of the current, I'll say the EDI or equity, diversity, inclusiveness uh, narratives that are out there. I think a lot of this comes from this realm of making uh, Westerners all hate themselves and where they came from and all their histories when literally every other culture on the planet has been doing the same thing for eternity. But can you talk about uh, specifically the way China is using this the victimhood and the racism cards. I think you do a very good explanation of this stuff. Right. So I do we have time for me to just talk about the pattern? Like yeah. so what the, oh, yeah. the yeah, yeah. pattern of it before I go on to that part. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So then another thing is that um another thought is in July twenty twenty, BC announces that they will give ten million for the Chinese Canadian Museum. And then in July 2020, there is something called Canadian Chinese Heritage and Future Foundation, PCHFF. It was set up by Dingguo. Dingguo is another well-known Chinese commentator who often heritage CCP's line. Now, the reason why they set up the CCHFF is that in March 2023, the Canadian Community Service Association, CCSA, which is another provision um, organizations. I think that if you look at the chart on chapter 15, you will see the name there. Uh, CCSA donated 10,000 to the CCM through the Dingguo's CCHFF, the foundation. And to, so it doesn't donate directly to CCM, but through the foundation to CCM. So here's what you said, another layer to cover up the money trail. And and then that's and it, the CCSA has close ties to the Chinese consulate. It held a banquet to welcome the new Chinese Consul General in March 2023. And it is the same month that they donate the money to the CCM. But on May 2023, on May 23rd, 2023, community organizers from 18 Chinatowns across North America met in Vancouver for the first U.S.-Canada-Chinatown Solidarity Conference to discuss how to revitalize and to preserve the history of Chinatown. Now, then also on May 23, 
um, the, the Federal International Trade and Economic Development Minister, Mary Ang, who enjoyed her ice cream in Beijing while the two Michaels were detained and tortured, uh, announced federal government pledged five million to the CCM. So money coming in from the BC government, money coming in from the federal government, not announced, both all announced by both CCP uh, Beijing friendly politicians. Then on June 13 and 14, the new council general uh, visited Chinatown Ruin Cemetery of Early Chinese Immigrants, BC government apology to Chinese monuments, and said, people in this quote, people in this world uh, to remember the historical contribution made by Chinese to Canada and the past sufferings. So the, the, China, the Council General emphasized past sufferings. Uh -huh. so, so, so let's see the patterns in here. And these are all the dots. What do you usually do? Pick an honorable cause that is related to past Chinese sufferings and can easily stoke strong emotions from ethnic Chinese, especially the Han Chinese. So that is their strategy number one. Then this is like the Nanjing Massacre Commemorative Day campaign, which is a righteous, hard to dispute cause related to Chinese suffering in the hands of foreigners. So they chose that. So you cannot object to it, right? Um, then the project or the campaign or the endeavor will be endorsed by the Chinese consulate, championed by Beijing-friendly politicians, supported by United Fund, work, Fund groups and pro-CCP media and influencers, and largely funded by Canadian taxpayers. Uh -huh. So this pattern number two. Then mobilize then they mobilize unsuspected enthusiastic volunteers and NGOs to rally behind the cause at the number three and and then there is a strong uh, you can find a looking for a motivation once you see these dots and these patterns you also look for motivation this is a motivation so what is in it for CCP in terms of a Chinese-Canadian museum? Museum would be invaluable values for the CCP to tell a good China story. Museum are usually being seen as credible sources for historical information. They're part of the public education system. And local museums are often on the must-see list for parents and students when they travel to here, right, to the place. Yeah. If you can control and influence a narrative or interpretation of exhibition in a reputable museum, you can be right history. And, and also the Chinese Canadian Museum in Chinatown can also serve as a hub to attract resources, grow activities, and even to organize Chinese culture and history educational programs to brainwash and spread this information about history and the current status of China and the PPC, et cetera. And the CCP would be way worse. I mean, the Chinese, a Chinese Canadian museum doing this would be way worse than the Confucius Institute because it is a Canadian institute. Yes. Right? Um, and 
the Chinese Community Museum also will increase the chance for Vancouver Chinatown to obtain World Heritage Site status from UNESCO. And if, once Vancouver Chinatown becomes a World Heritage Site, the status of the Chinese Community Museum will be raised internationally. It will be visited by many millions, and what the museum says becomes truth. Mm-hmm. And then if, if they can make the entire Chinatown into a museum, that's a plan, like a um, pseudo-museum, operating under the guidance of United Fund World, but funded by Canadian taxpayers, it would even be better. If they can make all the Chinatowns in the world to become museums, then the story of China, as told by the CCP, would be cast in stone worldwide. The real history would be forgotten. So that, so yeah, and you know, well, like I understand that. Um, I guess history is always kind of written by the victor, but when you put it that way, it sounds even scarier. <laughs> so, yeah, but it, it, you know, you're funding you you as a Canadian are funding this, so it's legitimizing it. Yes, that's not the only that's that's not the only example of where we're funding United Front operations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I want to I want to say one thing. Like the Chinese Canadian Museum is only a small part of a much bigger global ambition of the CCP about the world's Chinatown and UNESCO. And you will read the full details of that, of the big picture in chapter fifteen, the puppet mayor. And it's scary when you read that chapter. And in 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 fact, to help the readers understand all the rabbit holes and the big picture. I did an infographic for the chapter, but I apologize. There are two typos in the graph. But <laughs> I'm sure people can forgive you with all the information you're providing them. <laughs> we'll, we'll survive. I did it when I, in the last minute and my eyes was hardly able to open. So. <laughs> the visual is very helpful. <laughs> so I come back to you. Let me just come back to you, Lord. Your question about the racist cult, right? So, well, yeah, and you kind of touched on it. I mean, even talking in there, bringing up the victimhood part of it. Yeah. Um, yes. I was just wondering if you could kind of explain how they use this twin card strategy of racism and victimhood. Right, right. Um, the racist and victimhood cards are the key weapons for CCP psychological warfare on the democracy. Um, they are particularly effective on a multicultural society like Canada. Um, the, the primary function of the racist cult is to muzzle any criticism of CCP, to suppress any investigation of issues that might affect the CCP's interests or might expose the CCP's hidden hands, or to create, in, and also another function is to create internal turmoil in the targeted group or the country. Um, the more, the more division, the more confusion, the more resentment within Canadian society, the more opportunity for CCP to divide and conquer. So that is what the racism card uh, uh, function is. Now, the, the tactic exploits our conscience. It manipulates our genuine goodwill to combat racism and to right historical wrongs. By accusing researchers, journalists, or critics of being racist, the card players sidetrack the public attention and discussion from the real issues such as money laundering, housing, or election meddling. And then it, it creates backlashes to the investigators 
to the reporters uh, and to the critics, and then turn important issues into untouchable topics. If, and if I could jump in just real quick. So this is even something that I've had discussions with informants about, where they say, you used to spend 90% of your dollars fighting crime. Now you spend 50% of it on social justice issues and you don't have money to come after me. So this, this plays right into law enforcement. This is right down to all the issues we see everybody protesting about every single day. And it's like literally every day we're almost having a protest. Mm-hmm. So, sorry, go ahead. That is part of the strategy. Is that, that's why they also want to defund police mm-hmm. right, in Vancouver. Um, now then, the victim recount plays a different role. The victim recount portrays the Chinese people as the never-ending victims of bullying and invasion from foreigners. The goal is to instill an extreme sense of vulnerability uh, in the community in order for them to develop an ultra-patriotic sentiment to their motherland. So the way Temple Card also played to drum up a sense of superiority and supremacy, right? It constantly reminds the Han Chinese that you are descendants of the dragon or children of the Yellow Emperor, the saintly blood of the heavenly dragon or the Yellow Emperor is flowing in your veins. Since blood is thicker than water, you must bend together, no matter where you are, to regain your rightful place by the rejuvenation of the Middle Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And followed by that, they would say, they would make you know that CCP is the only that one government can give you that to re- revise the Middle Kingdom. So the CCP's message for the Chinese community is, you are descending the dragon. Chinese were the world's number one civilization when the white people were still in the Stone Age. The barbaric foreigners have insulted us, bullied us, invaded us, and looked down on us right now. You will always be defenseless without a strong motherland. And only the CCP can give you a strong motherland. You need to help to make CCP even stronger in order to restore your dignity, to hold your heads high, and to regain your glorious rightful place in the world as a proud descendant of the dragon. That's the message in everything. There's a lot in there that uh, sounds like a, uh, an abusive domestic relationship. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. It's like, I'm the only one who can give you this. Nobody else likes you. Come back to me. Like there's so many themes in there that just kind of resonate with the same kind of uh, relationship. So, and CCP also has a message for the Caucasians because it's holistic, right? So their racist kind of victim who got can't combined, and then the message for the Caucasian is: look into the mirror, you racist, colonialist, imperialist, you are xenophobic. Look what you have done to your indigenous people. You have no right to criticize the CCP's human rights records. Your criticism about the CCP is just xenophobia, China bashing, and jealousy. The CCP lifted 800 million people out of poverty, a miracle in human history. The CCP is good for China, and the Chinese people need the CCP. 
the peaceful, civilized, and benign Chinese people represented by the CCP are your victims. Whatever flaws we have are results of your shameless racism and colonialism. To redeem your white skills, be gentle to us and appreciate our successes. That's the message to you. So, but I can't help in here to debunk their propaganda about they raised, they lifted 800 million people, our poverty created a miracle, which is a distorted fact. Just not that long ago, probably two or three years ago, uh, China's former premier, Li Keqiang, actually in a report saying that there are, six, there are 600 million Chinese people still making less than 1,000 yuan a month. That is less than 150 US dollars a month. That is way below the poverty line. So if we look at that, people that who are actually below the poverty line would be much higher mm-hmm. because 150 is way below. So the one below poverty line would be much higher. It would not be 600 million. And China at this point claimed that it has 1.4 billion. And if you, 6 million plus more people, more million people make below the poverty line, where is the 800 million people that lifted our poverty is? So you know this is actually inaccurate number the CCP were giving up. Yeah. The second thing I want to point out is democracy is much superior than dictatorship as a political system because in the history of uh, democracy, no one single democracy country had the uh, achievement of putting 90% of its population below the extreme poverty line of UN. And the Chinese Communist Party achieved that in 1980. Mm. They, were, they took over China in 1949, and then through numerous upheavals, greatly forward cultural revolution, and all these purges and others, completely destroyed the livelihood of people in China. And in 1980, they have nearly 90% of population is below the poverty, the extreme poverty line, which is less than US $1 a day. Wow. And no democracy country has that kind of achievement. Yeah. So we are way superior in terms of a system. Well, so maybe we'll kind of come to the end here. We'll wrap it up with like, a, I'm going to ask a very broad question because um, I want to get your opinion on this because uh, you, you're probably the most tied in person. You too, Scott, because uh, I don't think I asked it on the last time we talked. But what is the ultimate goal for the CCP? And when I ask that, it's, is this, are they looking uh, at it from an ideological perspective? Is it from an ethnicity perspective? You know, or do they just want everything? It's like, I, I want to be the top in every category. We're just taking over inch by inch. CCP is 
the bottom line for CP is a long-term survival and power. And the only guarantee for that is to make the world into a dictatorship-friendly place. So they have devised a long-term strategy to make countries in the world to either accept, support, or adopt authoritarian systems and values. And that is their goal. The goal is to make sure that the world is a place that they can prosper, to ensure their leadership role in that system and therefore, the longevity of the party. So the goal is the whole world to re. That's why they are doing uh, this remodeling of our psyche and uh, remodeling our references mm-hmm. in democracy. So we will be accustomed to the authoritarian way of doing things. We already they already succeeded halfway. We are accustomed to is that there and um, we many of the business and government accepted that with different cultures and therefore we're different way of doing things, different values. And and we even let look at the United States when Xi Jinping just came visited. They built up this wall in San Francisco so no one can protest in front of him. They will not see anything. Yeah. This this is not something that should be accepted in a democratic open society, but they did that for all the dictatorial visitors for C. So so he would be totally in a dictated um, in an environment that they deem to be appropriate for themselves only. So we already got to halfway through there. Um, if we don't act fast, they will succeed completely to turn the world into something that which is dictatorship friendly. Yeah, and do you have any uh, any point on there, Scott? Because I saw you put up, um, what was it? Oh yeah, control and global dominance. Yeah. You're saying, yeah, I um, when when I look at what the Chinese are trying to do, uh, not just in Canada but uh, the rest of the Western world, um, and and outside of the Western world, really, uh, it all has to do with control. And when you have a country with a population like Ivy has discussed, um, where so many people are below the poverty line, and yet they're the second, have the second most millionaires, over six million millionaires wow. uh, in the country, um, you have this haves and have nots thing. So there's a consolidation of power uh, that's been taking place by Xi Jinping, uh, unlike any other time in history. Um, and even though there has been there have been scholars that have advised him that now is not the time um, to be moving this um, call it uh, this dominance piece uh, forward yet there you know this wasn't supposed to happen for a while um, but he has decided that within his reign he's going to he's going to make some changes and he and he's done that um, you know he arrested the head of Interpol and, and imprisoned them for graft um, which undermines Western democracies immensely because that's our rule of law. And here, here the, the leader of Interpol is imprisoned. Um, so there's a lot of things that they're doing that have to do with that consolidation of power. Um, the mass surveillance, social and corporate credit, those are the, th- the examples of how they control their own population. Um, but that's also external. 
Canada actually has a policy on how to deal with Shannon and its corporate, uh, corporate credit. If you're going to do business with China, you have to play by their rules. Um, and I, I believe we touch on it in the book where we talk about um, Chinese crypto, where they're going to uh, implement a cryptocurrency that if you don't want to do business with us and you don't use our currency, well, then you're going to be out of luck. And that's quite significant. Um, the Belt and Road Initiative is, is another example of yeah. um, the survival piece that Ivy spoke about that, you know, they import the majority of their food and water, I believe. So there's there's all these things going on that don't have everything to do with conflict. It has to do with control. By controlling the narrative, China is able to sustain itself. But this is the first time in, in recent history where expansionism is has been discussed. We see this in the South China Sea. We see this with the Taiwan. Um, Brett, those things are are new. So people are trying to learn about what does China do when they try to force project. Um, we haven't seen that. Only the last time I believe we've had was in Korea, you know, or they back to North North Koreans. Um, yes, China has has been in in places uh, in Africa, um, in Syria, and some others, but in a different capacity. So our observation of, of what they can do um, now that they're trying to have a blue water Navy, they didn't have that before. Um, these are all, all new to the West. These threats are, are increasing. Um, and so you have to look at what is behind it. You asked about ideology, you asked about religion, you asked about a bunch of different things. And I dare say that it's, it's written in the white papers. It states that they want global domination by 2049. Now global domination you know, to the Western mind might be, oh my God, they want to take over the world like Hitler. Um, where, you know, that that might not be exactly the meaning behind it. It's being able to control your destiny and control markets, control um, how, how you're going to be receiving goods and also how people become reliant on you for, for either the goods or the transportation of those goods or the expertise on some of those things. The intellectual property theft is an example of China trying to move forward. Now that's within their own sphere of influence, within their own environment. You know, countries like Yemen and Iran are always looking for some good technology. And so when when China can become the one that leads the way, that's where we're going to see this shift and that's what they're hoping for. So mm. I would say that control is what they're after. Um, they they the money piece is always there, but money comes with control. Yeah. Um, power, he's consolidating power. So he has all the power in the world right now. Sitting at a table with the United States as, as their largest adversary, there's a lot, a lot at play. And right now, I would dare say that China's winning in a lot of ways because they've spread their population globally. They speak a lot of languages where we in the West, just don't have that capability to completely understand what's going on. Our population is just now waking up to what's been happening for the last 30 something years. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just was going to quickly add to point one is that this whole strategy is to weaponizing the entire population, the Chinese population. So that's why it's not 
like you just send as like how big your army forces are, whatever. They just make one billion people all have to work for them and with brainwash, of course. That's one thing that never happened in democracy. We won't be able to have that kind of human resources. The the second thing is that they want to control the the uh, rule of the games because democracy and dictatorship, the two systems are inherently incompatible. Just uh, because the citizenship requirements are very different. In dictatorship, they need everyone to be compliant, don't, don't think of the box, just follow rules, and then do whatever you're told. And they don't see citizens, people, as human beings. They see you as tools for them to use. Um, and human life is, um, is, in, is not valuable. Whereas in democracy, citizens are seen as the participatory unit mm. of the system. You are part of the system. So you have to be creative and they want you to be thinking and then suggestion and participating. So that means that if you, if, if the people under dictatorship system become like the citizens in uh, democracy, there will be no dictatorship. So they cannot allow that to happen. Whereas in in democracy, the same thing. If the citizens become like those in dictatorship, uh, then there would be no democracy because no one will participate, no one will raise ideas and this. Therefore, so the, the rule of the games are very different. So when you have two systems come together, as it is right now, intertwined, then one system got to win. Uh-huh. And the other system has to give. So CCP knows about this long term. They didn't expand before just because they were using a strategy of hiding your 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 light and to buy time. That's the strategy. And Xi Jinping believed that they have now enough capability. Time is right. So he started to show the sign, right? Um, and to do the actual uh, action to change the world against, to make the world become a dictatorial friendly world. I think he, um, it sounds like he wants to see this happen in his lifetime and maybe be yes. around for long enough to kind of reap some of the benefits of it if it's successful. He definitely wants to be a legacy of that. Yeah. Some of this sounds very cultish in the uh, almost like the blind following of of this ideology the middle kingdom um kind of be in the center of everything and it, yeah it's a lot to think about yeah i i think the one thing uh the west must pick up to that there's no constructive uh engagement yeah with between the two systems because they cannot be constructive because one has to win yeah because yeah, because they they just inherently incompatible, incompatible. Yeah, so I think we've given everybody a lot to think about and uh, a lot of reading to do as well. Um, we got over, we went over some solutions. I think we went over a whole bunch of ideologies. We talked about a lot of the strategies being used, uh, a lot of current events. Uh, yeah, I think uh, that's a, a good place to kind of wrap it up right now. Uh, I'll definitely look to talk to you guys down the road and see how things are going with the book and um, there's been some traction on those uh, fronts. Um, 
but yeah, I definitely want to say thanks for coming on here and um, say bye offline. But yeah, thank you very much for coming on. Um, this is a very critical conversation and a necessary discussion, definitely for uh, the political types and I'd say law enforcement and intelligence people. Uh, it's a lot of things they should be uh, concerned about. So, well, thanks for having me, Nathan. I really appreciate your time. And Ivy, it was great to talk with you again. Yeah. Thanks, Nathan. And thanks, Scott. It's just really interesting to have the discussion. Perfect. I'll wrap it there. And uh, yeah, we'll be in touch in the future. Sounds great. Thank you. Thanks, Nathan.